This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the Full Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the second episode of season 12. After last week's episode, I was kindly informed by the wannabe wolf, one of my Patreon members, that I'd pronounced some stuff wrong. I said River Burr when the correct pronunciation is Bure or Bure, depending on your accent. I also said Taverum when I should have said Taverum. Thanks for the heads up, I genuinely appreciate it when listeners reach out and inform me when I've pronounced something incorrectly. If you're new here, my inability to pronounce place names correctly is a bit of a running joke, even though I spend ages researching how to say things properly, I can assure you on that. Before we get into the story, let's break the ice as we always do. Here is the first opening icebreaker segment. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know that malaria spawned the gin and tonic? Tonic water contains quinine, quinine, I'm not sure how you say it, a medication used to treat malaria, and it was British soldiers stationed in India in the early 19th century who decided to add gin to their daily dose of the drink to make the extremely bitter taste more palatable. I don't know about you, but I can't stand tonic water. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. If I decide to be an idiot... I'll be an idiot on my own accord. That was said by Johann Sebastian Bach. Listener Marie Garner requested this case via Instagram. We're in Haverhill this week, a town in the east of England county of Suffolk, the next county down from Norfolk where we were last week. Haverhill is located 17 miles southeast of Cambridge, 29 miles northwest of Colchester and 65 miles northeast of London. Here are your five quickfire facts about Haverhill. Number one, Haverhill dates back to at least Anglo-Saxon times and is mentioned in the 1086 Doomsday Book. Number two, in 1620, Haverhill became known as a Puritan town, producing many Puritan preachers who founded Haverhill in Massachusetts, USA. Number three, Nathaniel Ward was one such Puritan clergyman and pamphleteer born in Haverhill who emigrated to Massachusetts in 1634. Ward compiled the Massachusetts Body of Liberties, the first legal code established in New England, and it's one of the earliest protections of individual rights in America. Number four, many of the town's historical buildings were destroyed in a fire in June 1667, although one notable building remains, the Anne of Cleves House. It's so named because it was reportedly given to Anne of Cleves after her divorce from Henry VIII. And finally, number five, East Town Park is located in Haverhill. The park has approximately 50 acres of meadows and tree belts. According to the 2011 census, Haverhill's approximate population is 27,041. This week's story began in the mid-1930s, just a handful of years away from the commencement of the Second World War. It was during that turbulent decade, in the midst of the Great Depression, that a young boy called Paul Norfolk was welcomed to the world by his doting parents and three elder siblings. 
Being the youngest child in a family of six no doubt had its perks as well as its frustrations, but Paul was much loved by each of his family members, which led to him having a remarkably happy childhood. That's no mean feat given he'll have been roughly five years old when the war began. Paul was born in the rural Suffolk village of Ridgewell, around five miles southeast of Haverhill, and it was there where he'd not only spend his formative years, but most of his life. I couldn't find any family tree or background information regarding Paul and his family, so I can't say for sure what his parents did for a living, although it's a logical guess to say that his dad likely served in the British Army. I say that because Paul went on to serve himself for a brief period when he turned 18, spending three years in the Army's Royal Tank Regiment. Paul was well liked by his muckers and they spoke highly of him, which would be a theme that would follow him for the rest of his life. His generosity knew no bounds, and despite having no kids of his own, none that I could find during my research anyway, he was a kind-hearted neighbour to the families in his community. The kids would often refer to him by the affectionate nickname Uncle, a testament to his approachable demeanour and endearing personality. His time in the army instilled in him a discipline and meticulous level of organisation that can likely only be learned from time served in the forces. He met the woman of his dreams, Esme, during those late teenage years and quickly asked for her hand in marriage, which she duly accepted. The loving couple would spend the next half century together, with Paul taking on the role of breadwinner by way of his job as a foreman at International Flavours and Fragrances Great Britain Limited. The American-based fragrance business has a location in Haverhill. A loyal and committed man not only in his personal life, Paul spent 30 years at the firm and acquired a well-deserved pension for his efforts, something which he hoped would see him and Esme through their golden years. Settling finally in a semi-detached property on Castle Lane in Haverhill, the couple got on well with the street's other residents. It were one of those quintessentially British streets where everyone knew each other. Gossip could be strife, sure, but they all looked out for each other. Think of a neighbourhood watch. I got that kind of vibe from the area. You could rely on your neighbours to watch out for burglars if you went on holiday, for example. The kind of neighbourly community that is, in my opinion, lacking in modern times. In 1996, Paul acquired the services of a solicitor to help him write a will. The then 62-year-old felt the time was right to think about the future, or rather Esme's, and opted to leave his entire estate, including his share of the family home, to her in the event of his death. You'll understand why I'm mentioning that seemingly random information later on. Throughout the 90s, Paul accompanied his close friend Jeffrey Rimmer on several trips to the Far East after Jeffrey's long-term wife passed away. The two best mates travelled all over and experienced things they could only have dreamed of until that point, but their favourite place to visit out of all the countries they saw was Thailand. It was ironically in 1996, the same year that Paul wrote his will, that the two became friendly with a woman in her 30s who earned money selling sweet treats such as donuts to hungry tourists on the beach. Her name was Bunthawi, although she went by the nickname Pacer to most people. I've no idea how she acquired that nickname, but that's how I'll be referring to her for the rest of the episode. A native of Thailand, Pacer didn't have the best start in life. Details of her early years are not known, but she became an orphan at the tender age of seven. She was forced to learn how to survive without any parental help and was on her own until she finally met a man she would go on to marry in the late 70s when she was just 17. 
With her tough upbringing potentially ending, Pesa and her husband began their new life and brought two children into the world. However, the marriage didn't have the happy ever after ending she hoped for. According to her, the husband in question, whose name I don't know, was physically abusive towards her, which understandably led to a breakdown in the relationship and a divorce. The kids appear to have remained with their father though, with Pesa left to once more fend for herself by offering massages to passers-by and selling the food on beaches. When she bumped into Paul and Jeffrey on the beach one day, they instantly hit it off. They became friends at first, but before long, Jeffrey and Pesa took their friendship to the next level. He was her knight in shining armour. With their romantic relationship came the opportunity for her to escape the difficult life she'd experienced thus far. Two years after meeting, Jeffrey and Pesa got married. Her fairy tale had become a reality. She had escaped her torrid past and could now begin the rest of her life with renewed optimism. If you're thinking that Pesa married Jeffrey purely for visa reasons and that she truly didn't love him, then I completely understand your logic. Having said that, for all we know, they were soulmates and loved each other dearly. Nothing I read indicates she married Jeffrey for nefarious reasons, but I would like to hear your thoughts on that as the episode progresses, because you'll start to notice some similar themes regarding Pace's behaviour as we get deeper into the story. Now living in the UK with her husband on Castle Lane, just down the road from Paul and Esme, Pacer was finally in a good place. She spent 12 happy years with Geoffrey, during which time she became his carer as his health inevitably deteriorated as he grew older. Approaching his late 70s as the noughties ended, Geoffrey became reliant on his wife despite her receiving no formal carer training. Neighbours on the street have since said that Pacer was beyond incompetent when it came to caring for her husband, especially when you considered her temperament and lack of patience. Wanting to help his wife's family as much as possible, Geoffrey had sent funds over to Thailand to purchase some land and build a home in which her family could live. What family that was, I've no idea, given she was an orphan, but I assume she made ties as she grew older. The planned building works went ahead. Pacer could now rest easy knowing her family back home was set up for life, and she also likely took comfort from the fact she had somewhere nice to stay whenever she visited. That speaks volumes as to Geoffrey's character and the love he had for Pacer. Geoffrey sadly passed away in 2010 of natural causes at the age of 77. Pacer was frustrated to learn that Geoffrey had not left his entire estate to her. She only inherited his pension, which was still substantial, with the rest of his estate, including the house on Castle Lane, being left to his two daughters from his previous marriage. Now a widow, Pacer was left in a precarious position. Jeffrey's two daughters planned to sell the home and explained to their mother-in-law that she would have to move out. Reminding her that their dad had bought her family land and built them a house back in Thailand, the sensible option, so they thought, was for her to return to her native country. Not wanting to do that, Pesa came up with a plan. She informed the two sisters that there were plenty of other men interested in her, some of whom lived just up the road and that she would not be returning to Thailand anytime soon. Given she knew Paul from the time he spent in Thailand with Jeffrey, she reconnected with him and offered her services as a carer. By that point, Esme was in a bad way. She had early onset dementia and had recently suffered a fall which left her both physically and mentally incapable of looking after herself. 
Before any of the neighbours knew what was happening, Pacer moved into the home Paul shared with Esme and became her full-time live-in carer. One neighbour mentioned on an episode of Nurses Who Kill, which covered this case in Season 3, Episode 8, that Pacer was just there one day. There was no apparent adjustment period, she just moved in randomly and never left. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Paul had relied on Esme massively throughout their marriage. She was the one who cooked, cleaned and ensured the house was kept tidy. He never learned how to cook or fend for himself, so given Esme's health, he greatly appreciated having another pair of hands in the house. Paul had his own health issues, which again Esme was previously responsible for helping him manage. He had type 2 diabetes, which required regular insulin shots. Pacer therefore also took on the role of Paul's carer, but she reportedly didn't do a great job. Neighbours recalled seeing Paul look frailer than usual once she moved into the house, and it would later be revealed that Paul was not given his insulin as often as he should have. When Esme suffered a stroke, her condition deteriorated so drastically that the decision was made to place her in a nursing home after a brief stint in respite care. The carers weren't happy with the level of care she was receiving at home, which made the decision to place her into full-time care easier. That left Pacer alone with Paul, whose appearance then became even more dishevelled than before. The pair decided to visit Thailand shortly after Esme was taken out of the marital home, but it wasn't a great trip for Paul due to his insulin apparently going missing. He got incredibly sick, and things didn't get much better upon their return to the UK. The neighbours felt like they were practically doing Pacer's job for her when it came to caring for Paul. They scratched their heads and wondered what on earth Pacer was doing and whether Paul was receiving any care. Concerns were raised that Paul was not eating due to the amount of weight he appeared to be losing. Given he couldn't cook, was Pacer starving him by not doing so either? She would later insist that she and Paul were in a relationship and felt it was her duty to make him happy. If so, that goes against reports that claim Paul was becoming more and more depressed as the days and weeks passed due to effectively losing his darling wife of almost 50 years. In early 2011, Paul once more acquired the services of a solicitor. This time, he wanted to change his will and leave everything to Pacer. The solicitor did everything he could as far as due diligence is concerned, but because Paul was of a sound mind, he had no choice but to make the requested amendments. At first, just the house was left to Pacer, but by October, Paul's entire estate, worth around 340 grand, that's 479 grand in today's money, was to be left to her. Esme was completely removed from the will. As we approach the tragic events of this story in December 2011, it was on Friday the 29th that Paul visited his bank's local branch and sent a large sum of money to an associated bank account held in Thailand, which was more than likely in Pacer's name. That evening, Paul had a beer or two before bed, as he typically did, which sent him quickly into a deep sleep. The next day, he was due to meet his brother Peter at a pub in Cambridge for a beer and a catch-up but he uncharacteristically didn't turn up. Peter knew how unlike Paul it was to no-show such a pre-planned meeting without so much as a word, so he immediately called upon Paul's neighbours to ask if they'd heard from him. Some neighbours went over to Paul's house and knocked on the door, but nobody appeared to be home. 
His spaniel, Billy, would normally bark like mad whenever the door went, but on this occasion, the house inside fell silent. After a short while, the decision was made to inform the police, who gained permission to enter the property forcibly after speaking with Peter. Their attempts at gaining a response by knocking on the door had also gone unanswered. Anxiously watching on as the officers made their way inside, Paul's neighbours spotted his hat and coat hung up on a rack. Paul never left the house without his hat on, so the neighbours immediately knew he was inside. They feared the worst. A swift and thorough search of the house ended with officers securing the property after discovering the bodies of both Paul and Pacer in an upstairs bedroom. They were lying next to each other and there was blood all over the bed and walls. Paul had severe injuries to his head and was pronounced dead at the scene. Pacer, on the other hand, appeared to have met the same fate but had a faint pulse and was still breathing. She was quickly taken away to Adambrook's Hospital in Cambridge to be treated for her injuries. Detectives spotted some concerning items dotted around the bedroom, including a claw hammer, a cleaver, two large kitchen knives, a broken necklace, an empty packet of pills and some toilet cleaner. Given the doors to the property were locked, it didn't appear as though a third party had inflicted the injuries sustained by Paul and Pacer. It wasn't a robbery gone wrong, for example. Three possible scenarios were played out. One, Pacer had killed Paul and then tried to kill herself. Two, Pacer had killed Paul and then tried to cover it up by harming herself without intending to kill herself. Or three, the two had had a heated argument which ended with Paul's death. The following day, detectives arrested Pacer on suspicion of murder at the hospital before she was moved to Bury St Edmunds Police Investigation Centre to be questioned. The forensic pathologist who conducted Paul's post-mortem confirmed that his cause of death was due to head injuries inflicted by a blunt object. Given the items found at the scene, the weapon in question must have been the claw hammer, but what were the knives for then? After killing Paul, Pacer took an excessive quantity of pills, some sources claim they were antidepressants, drank the toilet cleaner, stabbed herself in the chest and attempted to slash her own throat. When she had sufficiently recovered from her injuries, Pacer appeared at Ipswich Crown Court in March 2012 and entered a plea of not guilty regarding Paul's murder. She claimed during police interviews that her relationship with Paul had become abusive, much like her first marriage had, but how much truth there is behind that claim I can't say. By the time her trial began that July, she had admitted to having killed Paul but insisted it was not murder. Claiming to have been hearing a voice in her head on the morning of December 30th, she said it was saying the word dead over and over. Pacer said, I felt unhappy, hot like fever. My heart was beating very fast. I felt as if I'd heard something in my head, as if someone was cursing me, as if I was a bad person. Andrew Jackson, for the prosecution, dismissed any claims of depression and mental illness by indicating just how much of a sustained attack it was that led to Paul's death. In total, Pacer hit Paul over the head with the claw hammer 12 times, and by the time she'd finished, he was still reportedly alive, albeit barely. It's estimated it took Paul 15 hours to die, during which time Pacer did nothing to help him. She didn't call for an ambulance or attempt to save him, she simply lay there with him before finally attempting to take her own life. Mr Jackson added, He did not move, he did not struggle, he was probably asleep when he was murdered. 
Attempting to somewhat justify her actions, Pierce had told the court that she felt uneasy and sad because Paul had told her he no longer wanted to carry on with their relationship after meeting another woman. She said she'd never thought of killing him and vaguely remembered grabbing the hammer and three knives, although she didn't recall actually hitting Paul with a weapon or seeing any blood. Dr. Gillian Meze, a consultant psychologist, put across her opinion that Pierce's mental health was indeed a factor in her killing Paul. She said, The depressive disorder from which Mrs. Rimmer was suffering was a significant contributory factor in explaining why she killed Paul Norfolk. The jury was far from convinced and returned from retiring after just over seven and a half hours. They found Pacer guilty of murder by way of a majority decision and she was subsequently handed a life sentence with a minimum term of 11 years. Sentencing judge Mr Justice John Saunders said, I do not lose sight of the fact that a decent man has lost his life in a brutal fashion at the age of 77. Paul Norfolk was, by all accounts, a well-liked, decent man. His death is a tragedy for his family, some of whom have given evidence and demonstrated admirable fairness and restraint in the way they did this. No one should lose their life in the way that Paul Norfolk did. It was a wicked thing to do, as I am satisfied the defendant recognised and led to her trying to kill herself. I am satisfied that the defendant's account that Paul Norfolk was saying that he was going to dispense with her services as a carer was untrue. It is inconsistent with the rest of the evidence, which was to the effect that Paul Norfolk was saying he couldn't live without the defendant. Pacer's minimum term ended in 2022, and it was in August of that year when her parole appeal took place. A month later, she was informed that her parole bid had been rejected. The possibility of moving her to an open prison was also discussed and rejected. The three people representing the parole board were not convinced that Pacer had made significant progress in prison. They felt she was too dangerous to be held in open prison conditions. I'll end this story by answering a question any dog lovers listening will have no doubt asked during the story. What happened to Billy, Paul's spaniel? You'll be delighted to hear that Paul's family successfully rehomed him. And that was the story of the murder of Paul Norfolk. Thanks again, Marie Garner, for requesting that case. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. This week's four new reviews are as follows. Mandy Lou left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Love the podcast. Keeps me going during my parcel deliveries, which at this time of year is a nightmare. Discovered it around six weeks ago, and I'm already up to season 11. Love the facts, your empathy toward the victims and their families, not to mention how cute your daughter sounds during your icebreakers. If I was being really picky, I would criticise, but only slightly, your pronunciation of Welsh place names, etc., as others have already said. I did tell you it was a sort of a running joke, didn't I? However, I also find it quite amusing. If you want someone who can send you pronunciations of Welsh place names, etc., feel free to get in touch via WhatsApp and I can send you voice messages to help. Thank you very much for that. Chantelle left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com, which reads, As a Yorkshire girl, Barnsley... I love Stu's accent. Came across the podcast after listening to a similar Australian podcast, but this one is my fave by far. I've caught up now and it's killing me to have to listen weekly. Discovered Bobby Holmes through this podcast and love her, so I'm now listening to Killer Stories. Keep up the amazing work. Mike Oxlong left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It's short and sweet and it reads, Love the show, not too long and not too short. 
Finally, Rhett Eubanks left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, The show is so well done and Stuart rocks. I'm such a huge fan and can't wait for more. I love the show Des on Prime with David Tennant about Scottish serial killer Dennis Nilsson. I'd love to hear an episode about him. Keep on keeping on, Stu, from Hartford, New York. Well, Rhett, I did actually cover Dennis Nilsson. I did a two-parter. I forget what season special it was, but I have done Dennis Nilsson, so go check that out. Thank you, Mandy Lou, Chantel, Mike, and Rhett for leaving those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser, or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. Please consider heading to patreon.com slash britishmurders and signing up for a membership. If you choose my OBE or CBE tier, you'll gain early and ad-free access to all future episodes. You'll gain access to several bonus episodes as well as my British Murders weekly journal series. I also do Patreon-exclusive giveaways from time to time. There is another one coming up very soon. And you'll get some thank you goodies for signing up as well. Just want to say hello and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Graham, EJ, Shebrooks, Fiona Richardson, Elaine Lytham, Susan Hislop, Jessica Darby and Jessica Sullivan. If you'd prefer to support the show on a one-off basis, you can do that by heading to buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Please continue emailing any case suggestions to contact at britishmurders.com or you can message me on social media. You can leave a comment on one of my YouTube videos. You will get the episode covered when I get round to it. You'll also get a cheeky shout out for your trouble just like Marie did. And that does us for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.